Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Why is the computer not on the ground? Why is the, like the window not broken? He's a fit guy. This is not a scene that's a fight in my mind. Why did he not try and stop this from happening? And when I asked the pathologist, how long would Mr. Buller be able to move before he died? And I was told two minutes. Well, I can do a lot of damage in five seconds, never mind two minutes. Two minutes is a long time. It's Thursday afternoon, January 18th, 2001. At the University of Toronto in downtown Toronto, Canada, students settle in for their 4 p.m. art class. It's taught by David Buller, a popular professor who's never late for his classes. Until today. When David doesn't show up, a few concerned students stop by his office. The door is shut tight. And when they knock, he doesn't answer. Little do they know that the body of their beloved professor lies on the other side of the door. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, The Art of Murder. Early the next morning, on January 19th, Detective Sergeant Ken Taylor with the Toronto Police Homicide Squad is in the middle of a gym workout when his pager goes off. There's a sudden death at the University of Toronto. It's a professor there who was found dead in his office, and the coroner's on the way, and 52 Division has secured the scene. The office is located inside the Connaught Building at 1 Spadina Crescent. This is a downtown monument, basically, this building. It's a really popular area of Toronto, and it's in the U of T campus, which is the largest university in Canada. It's a four-story building. It's an arts building, and it also contains an eye clinic where they preserve eyes. And the rest of it is basically uh, for the arts department at the University of Toronto. The body was found by a cleaning lady at about 6.30 in the morning. She was cleaning, saw what she saw, and came out and called uh, the security, who called the police. The victim is a single male, 50-year-old David Buller. He's a visual arts professor and has taught at the University of Toronto for 15 years. But when we walked in, we could see Mr. Buller uh, lying on the ground on his right side. The chair, he was looked appeared like he was sitting in the chair and he fell over. Right away, we look at the scene and it's very calm. It's not like there had been a fight there. It's a very, very quiet scene. 
He's fully clothed, black pants, blue shirt, black shoes. So we looked at it and our first thought was this could be a potential suicide. I expected to see a weapon underneath Mr. Buller's body. And when I rolled his body over and see if there was a knife under his body, there was not. So now we're dealing with a murder. Right away, the first thing that I looked at was right at the IDENT guy, probably with a looking a little startled. And I just told him, Luminol every door. That was the first thought out of my head, is Luminol every door in this building. The vicious slaying has produced a large pool of blood. David was stabbed six times in his chest and once in his back. Surely the killer would have had blood on his hands when he left the scene of the murder. Detective Taylor hopes that Luminol, a chemical agent that reacts to invisible traces of blood by emitting a bright glow, will help lead him to the killer. As Taylor begins his investigation, he's struck by the fact that the violence of the attack is strangely at odds with the calmness of the scene. It's also at odds with the man himself. Bearing a strong resemblance to her slain uncle, it was David Buller's niece who stepped out of the darkness of her family's grief to make a heart-wrenching appeal for the killer to come forward. I was in my early 30s, and I was in, in grad school at the time. I was in a busy office. Phones were ringing, people were talking, there was a lot of activity, and suddenly somebody said, Karen, the phone is for you. And I thought, who's calling me here? And when I took the phone, it was my sister, and I just immediately knew something was wrong. And she said, Karen, I'm so sorry, it's Uncle Dave. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And she said, he's been murdered. And I think I just immediately went into what is a sort of default reaction for me, which is to kind of go numb. David's niece, Karen Sandloss, is now an art professor in Chicago, following in her uncle's footsteps. We always had David's paintings, you know, hanging in our house when I was growing up. And I just remember being small and looking up at these giant canvases full of shapes and colors and movement and wondering about them. <laughs> you know, what was this kind of art that my funny uncle made? David was somebody who people respected. He was smart. He was creative. He was hilariously funny. He was a good friend to other people and he worked hard and he was a very, very committed teacher and a, a very serious painter. David Buller's best friend, Paul Castleman, has known David for decades. Dave was very much an introvert. He could be great with people, absolutely, but his default position would be, give me a good book and a little bit of scotch and I'm going to be really happy this evening. I talked to him on the morning of his murder and we left it that he had to go to a class for one o'clock and uh, we would connect that evening. I called him and there was no answer. And I thought, well, maybe he's gone to bed. He's had a longer day, so I'll reach him in the morning. And when I couldn't reach him in the morning, I was actually at my home then, when on the radio I heard that he had been murdered. And I went into shock mode and tried to let as many people know as I could. 
The popular University of Toronto art professor was found murdered in his faculty office on Spadina Crescent Friday morning. At first, of course, they had to rule out the possibility that this was a hate crime that had to do with homophobia. David was gay, and his art often dealt with a provocative exploration of male sexuality. The bold, homoerotic themes in his work were quickly seized upon as a motive for his murder. Could this have been a hate crime? When somebody's a gay person and they're out, as David was, that is going to be one of the first angles the police are going to investigate. Especially for an artist like David, who was gay and who came up and came out when it still wasn't acceptable to be gay. There was still a lot of stigma and a lot of prejudice against gay people that David had to contend with. One of the things, you know, people wondered about after David was killed, was there something about his art making that could explain why he was killed? With respect to a hate crime, there was no evidence to suggest that at all, other than the violence, that which has got nothing to do with hate, but it's just a violent way that Mr. Bullard's life was taken. The police describe it as a crime of passion. It's something that happens between people who know each other. The level of violence indicates there was a relationship. But one of the challenges, I think, for us then was that you know David was a pretty private person, especially when it came to his personal life. If he was dating someone, you know, he wouldn't necessarily have shared that with us. Mr. Buller was a 50-year-old gay man. He was on a gay dating website, which uh, we found out later didn't have any, uh, he didn't get any contacts. We went to several places where Mr. Buller attended, like, you know, for a drink and bars in uh, Gay Town, and they were so cooperative. Whatever I asked these people to do, and how could they help, and this is terrible, and we have a really strong relationship with the gay community in Toronto, and they were willing to help us. Detective Taylor creates a fake profile, similar to David's, on the dating website, hoping it might lure a killer out of the shadows. But there's no evidence that the murder is connected to any relationship of David's. He told me that he wasn't seeing anybody at that time, and he was okay with that. He was comfortable with where he was at in his life. It seemed very unlikely to me that this had been a lover or a date. It seemed much more likely that it was someone from some other part of David's life, someone he knew, but in, in some other context. Lead homicide detective Ken Taylor says the last person to see Buller alive was a student who saw him on an elevator Thursday afternoon. Taylor is downplaying speculation the killing is associated with Buller's gay lifestyle. The detective says there was no sign of a break-in at Buller's office. It's determined that the murder weapon is a five or six inch long knife. But after a massive neighborhood search, the weapon is never located. Detectives also strike out on a forensic sweep of David's office building. I had our forensic people spray every handle in the Connaught building with this luminol to see if any blood would react because it's possible the killer might have blood on his hands. And I don't know, there's hundreds of door handles that they went around. It took two of them for like an hour and a half to do it. And they did every handle in the whole place and not one reacted. 
Unfortunately, at the time of David's murder, there were no security cameras in the building. But after interviewing students and staff who were there that afternoon, the investigators are able to put together a precise timeline of David's activities leading up to the murder, and perhaps even pinpoint an exact time of death. On the afternoon of January 18, 2001, around 1 p.m., David was seen talking to another teacher in a nearby university building. He then walked to his office in the Connaught building. He arrives there shortly after 1, maybe around 1.05. At 1.09, the computer in his office is started up. And then what, at 1.10, we know he uses his phone in his office to call the person that he just left the Sydney Smith building and left her a voicemail. And it was just about business. There was nothing of any interest to us. Right below Mr. Buller's office in the eye clinic in the Connaught building, there was one of the ladies there was having a baby shower. And there was eight to 10 people at this baby shower about one o'clock. At about 1.30, the people in the baby shower, they hear a loud altercation or a fight occurring directly above them. And that happens to be Mr. Buller's office. It lasts for a couple of seconds, and then it stops. They don't know if it's a male voice, a female voice. One person described it as a thud, but they basically just went on with their baby shower and just thought it was just an argument between two people. The party continues till about 1.45 when they're starting to split up from the baby shower. Hey, Unsolved Mysteries listeners. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. There's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for family members, and sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with Gift Mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for my fitness fanatic sister. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners Adidas, Expedia, and Ray-Ban. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for travel deals and home electronics. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Were the noises heard by the party guests at 
the sound of David with his killer? Detective Taylor reviews timestamps from David's computer hard drive, and the mystery only deepens. At 1.58 on Mr. Buller's computer, he's looking at paintings on his computer. At 2.02 p.m., the victim opens Apple Works to do a drawing. The drawing is of, it looks like two males looking at each other. And it's kind of like a doodle. One appears to be Mr. Buller, and then the other one appears to be a male, and this person's in bondage. That drawing is saved at 2.21 p.m. And at 2.24, there was a print request for the drawing. The drawing that was saved at 2.21 did not have any words on it, but the drawing that was printed just three minutes later at 2.24 shows words that must have been added to the drawing immediately after it was saved. If you go back on the computer, the drawing is saved, but no words are saved. The words were not saved on the computer. And then at 2.25, the plug was pulled out of the computer. So I believe that Mr. Buller was murdered at or near 2.24 p.m. The phrase on that printed drawing consists of six words, and it's a clue police refuse to release in the hope that it can be used to confirm the guilt of a potential suspect. The drawing itself has been made public and has sparked many theories. I think the drawing was there as a ruse to reinforce this homophobic reaction. When I first saw the picture, I didn't think Dave had done it. It just looked so coarse. But our friend said he had seen this type of image that Dave had done in another context. But what it had is it had a profile of a lookalike of Dave wearing a baseball cap. And in the background was a male torso in bondage with arms extended above the head. And there was some sort of splotchy, sponge-like markings around this. I believe this drawing is directly related to Mr. Buller's murder. The question is, one, did Mr. Buller, A, in fact, do this drawing? And if he did, was he the one that put the words on the drawing? Or was it someone else? Was Mr. Buller already dead? This strange clue raises the possibility that David's murder might be connected to his artwork. We learned that Mr. Buller had hired models, and we looked into the people that he hired, and I interviewed one, and I think there was a couple of them, but he's been doing this for years, and everything was professional, above board. There was nothing untoward. Was it a student? Was it a colleague? Was it an associate? And over time, the most likely explanation, the one that just keeps staring us in the face, is that it must have been someone who knew David and was familiar with the campus. If you said to me, go to the front door and find room 230, you'd have a really hard time finding it. You'd have to know where it is. You would really have to know how to get there because it's a maze because they have art classes and classrooms where they do the paintings and where they do sculptures and these kind of things. As investigators zero in on the students and staff of the University of Toronto, they soon learn about one student from the art school who has a violent and combative reputation. 
He was a former student of Mr. Buller, kind of an odd guy. And the year before, people were intimidated by him. He was loud. He was abusive. He didn't like the fact that he was being taught by a gay professor. He complained about everything. He complained about the professor he had before. He complained about the stuff that he had to do his drawings. He was one of these type of people. Hadn't been a student for well over a year. One of the witnesses said they believe they saw this person of interest at the university the day before the murder. So there's a very good chance that he may very well have been in the Connaught building 24 hours before Mr. Buller was murdered. When we asked him about it, he admitted to being a student. He had nothing to do with it. He hasn't been there, except he went down there the day before because he went to the library because he was upset that they took his privileges to the library away. To verify the student's alibi, Detective Taylor pulls security footage from a bank near the suspect's home. At 12.34, the afternoon of the murder, the student can be seen on camera. We have him going back towards his house at 12.39 p.m. I have somebody watch the video till about 5 or 6 o'clock, and he's never reappears on the video. It's about an hour and a half away with public transit from where he lives to the Connaught building. So could he have jumped over fences to not be seen on the camera? Well, that's possible. But even at quarter to one, an hour and a half takes you till quarter after two. So uh, we basically ruled this person out as a suspect. It was virtually impossible for him to get down there. Because David's murder happened in his workplace, we had to take into consideration the possibility that David was killed by someone he worked with. That's not an easy idea to wrap our minds around because David had colleagues he worked with for many, many years. People who were colleagues, but also friends of his. And we've had to grapple with the real possibility that there was a colleague or colleagues who may have had a long simmering dispute with David and who ultimately lashed out at him in this incredibly consequential way. A colleague, a jealous colleague, a colleague who admired Dave but was threatened by Dave on one level, had the opportunity to do this and did it. It was somebody who he had to trust to be that close to him and as somebody capable of betrayal. Paul Castleman believes David's relationship with some of his colleagues had become strained. Was one of his fellow faculty members enraged enough to commit a savage murder? Detective Taylor investigates and learns that around the time of David's death, the suspected colleague was in the building, one floor up from David's office. But he also has what sounds like a solid alibi. He was conducting student interviews every 20 minutes. Who were the students who were doing the interviews? When were they being interviewed? What's the gap between the interviews? Are those students so reliable that they actually all showed up? Was there not 15 minutes to go down and create this opportunity? I don't know. I don't know. Detective Taylor runs down the possibilities 
but is unable to uncover anything to suggest the faculty member is their suspect. I think there might have been some frustration between them at a time, but it's these people work together all the time. So they've been working together for at least 10 years, maybe longer than that. That I'm guessing, but I know they've been together for quite some time. And nothing else came out from any of the other faculty that there was any frustration between the two of them. David's work colleague, who remains Paul Castleman's prime suspect, passed away soon after the murder. So if he was the killer, the solution to this mystery may have died with him. It's really, really frustrating. And again, I don't want to hear that Mr. Buller was such a great guy and he was this. I want to hear like somebody didn't like him or I didn't get along with this person or there's something here. He owed somebody money. He's got a drug habit. There was nothing like that. And it's also frustrating where there was people within 30 or 40 feet when this happened. Like they were there all afternoon. Like you tell me you didn't see anything. You didn't see anybody walk in, walk out, and the front door. Like people are walking in and out of that building all the time. And there was no ruckus. Somebody, somewhere, has got to see something. And nobody did. The biggest frustration I have is the scene is a suicide scene. This is not a scene that's a fight, in my mind. There's things there that are not disturbed. Why is the computer not on the ground? Why is the, like the window not broken? He's a fit guy. Why did he not try and stop this from happening? And when I asked the pathologist, how long would Mr. Buller be able to move before he died? And I was told two minutes. Well, I can do a lot of damage in five seconds Never mind two minutes. Two minutes is a long time. After hundreds of interviews, Detective Taylor is no closer to finding David's killer, and the frustration has taken a toll. I was in homicide for 20 years. When this happened, I was in about five, six years, and it's just sort of stuck with me. It's one of the cases, and that's no disrespect to any other case that I have, but it's just one of those things, because I grew up in the city, and it's like, something's not right here. This can't happen. You can hear the frustration in my voice, and it's 19 years ago. Anyway, sorry. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. David Buller's family continues to hope for justice in this case. We tried 
very hard to make sense of David's murder. And, and in a way, we're still trying. I think one of the great losses about David's life being cut short when it was, when he was 50 years old, is that we never got to see where he would have taken that work. Because he really had entered into, I think, the next phase of his practice. And it had lit a bit of a fire under him. He was excited about it. And he was in a very, very productive moment when he was killed. When David was murdered, I lost the most interesting, most inspiring, the funniest <laughs> uncle any kid could ever hope for. He never tried to teach me anything, but he taught me so much. I can only imagine the ways we could have connected now, talking about our work, that we never got a chance to do. So 20 years ago, Dave is murdered. And it was the most shocking day of my life. The grief is grief. The guttural sobs, they're just so deep. I didn't think about what I had lost. I just knew that it had been deep. Over all these years, I've realized many, many times what I've lost. I think what is so puzzling to me to this day is how blatant the crime was, how extreme, you know, how bold this happened in the middle of the day in a busy university campus building, lots of people around. How is it that we still don't know what happened. We're not giving up. <laughs> We're never giving up on trying to find out what happened to David. And there could be a person out there who knows something. We've always believed that somebody knows something and they just haven't wanted to admit it to themselves all this time. That's what we hope for, that somebody will feel their conscience and that time will be the thing that's allowed them to do that. Anyone with information about David Buller's murder is asked to contact the Toronto Police Service at 416-808-7400 or anonymously contact Crime Stoppers at 416-222-TIPS or go to unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries... He said, I had a dream last night. And I said, oh, yeah, what was it about? That's when he explained. He says, someone came to me and told me that they needed me and they needed my thoughts and my expertise and some things, and they wanted to take me with them. Then he said, well, I believe they're from another planet. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Mirror Productions and Cadence 13. It is executive produced by Terry Dunmuir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge, Christine Lennig, Courtney Ennis, and Paige Heimson. The story producer for this episode was Molly Ryan, and it was edited by Paul Yates. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil, Andy Jaskowitz, and Bill Schultz. Production support by Sean Cherry and Ian Mont. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. 
Thanks for listening to Episode 5 of Unsolved Mysteries. 